It's called the What's Next campaign. You may be real familiar with that. In fact, I think you will be when, as soon as I make a more specific reference to it in terms of a little video, but it's called the What's Next campaign. I know you've seen it. I know you've heard it particularly. Well, while we get into it, well, let's, just, let's just go ahead and show the 30-second video. That was the first one. Now, I know that you, if you, since we're from the West Coast, okay, it's a little bit strange because he says, I'm going to Disney World. But over here, the player, the football player who just wins the Super Bowl always says what? I'm going to Disneyland. So there's something going on there, right? There's something going on. Anyway, so they, they, have, a, they have it filmed two different ways. Uh, but it's known as the What's Next campaign. And, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't go just to Super Bowl winners. In other words, Super Bowl winners are the only ones who have said this. Uh, Magic Johnson of the Lakers, uh, they asked him the same question, and he said, I'm going to Disneyland. And Nancy Kerrigan, the famous ice skater, same thing. I'm going to Disneyland. Even David Cook, who uh, you probably don't remember. I certainly didn't remember, but I looked this up. David Cook, he's the 2008 American Idol winner. They asked him that question. You know, I'm going to Disneyland. But, of course, it begins with Phil, Sim Phil Sims. Uh, that particular year, that was a Super Bowl was between the Giants and the Broncos, and so they had it all set up so that if, if John Elway and the Broncos won, Elway would say, I'm going to Disneyland or Disney World, and then if Phil Sims won, he'd say, I'm going to Disney World or Disneyland or what have you. And they were, you know, they were paid $75,000 to say those things. I'm still waiting for you know the Disney Corporation to have you know ask that you know offer that to me, Pastor Delashaw, you have just preached the most amazing sermon, and people are so excited. What are you going to do next? Well, I'm going to Disneyland, right? And uh, but I'll deposit my check on the way, of course. So you know, anyway. So I I wonder I wonder since so much so many times this is about the Super Bowl winner. I'm wondering if w Russell Wilson this year is going to be the one. Is the Russell Wilson this year going to? Where's Brad? I don't know where Brad is. Brad, Brad, Brad's cooking burgers. I particularly put that in the message for him. I want to know what he thought. He's such a Super Bowl fanatic or Seahawk fanatic, I should say. Oh boy, that's those successful people. Those successful people are always on the way to Disneyland. Now, just in case you're interested, the whole "What's Next" campaign. It began with a conversation that happened in the mid-1980s between Michael Eisner and his wife. Uh, what's her, his, wife's name? his wife's name's Jane. So Michael and Jane Eisner, Michael Eisner, of course, being the CEO at the time of Disney, the Disney Corporation, they were, had a conversation with some friends. Uh, Dick Yeager, pretty famous guy. Dick Yeager and his wife, uh, they, anyway, they were, at, they were at dinner, and... Uh, Dick Yeager had just piloted an airplane all the way around the world without stopping or fueling. It was the first time it had been done. This was in 1986. And uh, Michael Eisner's wife, who is, again, Jane. Jane, uh, Jane, asked, uh, Jane Eisner asked, asked them, what are they going to do next? Actually, out of, what's next for you? What's, what's next? And the answer was, we are going to Disneyland. So it was just this casual dinner conversation that you know, kind of sparked this idea in the Eisners' minds, they thought, hey, that's a good campaign. Let's go ahead and ask the Super Bowl winner uh, what, uh, the same question. And so there you have it. There's, there you have it. Now, the reason I start with the What's Next campaign, and I know it's a very cute and kind of harmless idea and so forth, and 
who here wouldn't want to go to Disneyland if you, at least if you want to deal with the lines and the people? Not everyone wants to go, go there because of the lines and the people. Most people want to go to Disneyland. Most people, right? Delashaw kids always want to go to Disneyland. Anyway, um, it's, a, it's a cute campaign, but the reason I bring it up is because I actually think, as great as Disneyland is and Disney World and all that, I actually think it points to, and go with me here, bear with me, I think it points to the shallowness of our entertainment world and the shallowness, particularly, of celebration in our world. Uh, why do we celebrate? Why do we celebrate? What does the world say about celebration? Why does the world celebrate? Why do so many people go to Disneyland? And, and on the other side of life, I mean, different kind of world than the church, right? I mean, on this side, why do so many people party? Why do they party? I, I remember when I was in college, it's going to be kind of weird, but my senior year when I was in college, I lived in a fraternity house, and it was a football fraternity. This is one of the reasons why I'm, it is one of the reasons why I still love to watch college football, because I connected with these football players. You know, it's true. It's really true. Anyway, there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of nuts, but, but, but I, I remember even back then there was talk of toga parties, Right? Toga parties, which is, you know, I mean, it's from Animal House. So I'm not recommending you go and watch Animal House. It's a pretty, pretty rough movie. But the point is, is that, what's the point of a toga party? It's not understanding Greek culture. I've got to tell you that. It's the party to party. party. Why do you party? Well, I don't know why we party. Well, but, but please, don't help me or don't make me think through why I party because I just want to... I just want to. I just want to celebrate. But why do you celebrate? Well, I don't know. I mean, it makes me feel good. But what are you celebrating? And the world doesn't really have an answer for that in most cases. Why are they celebrating? Not really. Sometimes it's a person's birthday. Maybe it's a big year or whatever. But most of the time, people celebrate because they don't really know. They kind of want to forget a lot of pain. A lot of people celebrate to, uh, to avoid pain and so forth. Well, anyway, the point is, is the world does not have a good answer for celebration, but the Bible does. The Bible's very specific about our celebration. Uh, the Bible gives us a reason why we celebrate. The Bible celebration has to do with the great theme of redemption. Uh, there are quite a few people in this church that have been attending uh, Thursday nights. And on Thursday nights... That whole series, when you talk about the covenants of God and so forth, with the covenants that God makes with the people of Israel, that whole theme of, of covenants ties into the, to the other theme of celebration, I mean, or, or redemption. Why do we remember the covenants? Why do we remember the covenant that God made with, with us, his church, through Jesus Christ? Why do we remember the new covenant? It's redemption, right? God brings us into his family. We have a specific thing to celebrate. It's redemption. Now, I wanted to take a look. I think I'm going to, well, I am going to. I'm going to take us back to this whole great story of redemption that happens in Exodus, the Passover. I'm just going to read through this because reading Scripture is good for the church. Help us understand that there are specific historical reasons why we celebrate. Uh, Exodus 12, uh, God has brought the children of Israel, um, oh, he's bringing the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt and we read this in Exodus 12, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation 
Notice, I'll just stop right there for a moment. Notice that it's all the congregation. All the people are part of this. Tell all the congregation. If you're part of the people of Israel, if you're part of God's people, if you're one of God's people, then you are engaged in this celebration. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. See, God wants everyone to be a part of this. All the people of Israel. No one's out. Everyone's in. Verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. No excuse for being out of this. You're part of the congregation. You're inside. You celebrate with us. We move on. We continue in the reading. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted uh, on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet. In other words, you've got to be ready to go. got to be ready to go. God's doing something here. And your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, quickly. It's the Lord's Passover. A um, little bit more, a little bit more. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, male, uh, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. God's showing his superiority here. I am the Lord. All the gods of Egypt, God's going to judge them, you see. The blood shall be assigned to you or for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you, destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is going to do something in history. He's going to do a specific thing. This is very different than other religions of the world. Other religions of the world, particularly Eastern religions, they don't have historical events like this. That's critical for us to understand, that we celebrate because of what God has specifically done in time and space. It's because of what his action that we can go to God and say, oh, I praise you, I celebrate what you've done, and this kind of thing. Super, super important. Uh, Now, there are a lot of instructions in terms of this Passover event. And many, many sermons could be preached on this, but I'm not going to do that. I, I read that so that you have a sense of God acting in history and that, and that I want you to understand, I want you to see that this is about redemption. Why do we celebrate? Because of redemption. Um, and the emphasis on community is so important. Now, notice verse 14, which I haven't shown you yet, but I'm going to show you now. Exodus 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it, important word, keep it as a feast, another important word, to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Now, I just showed it, I'm showing you up here on the slide that the Hebrew word, it's hagag, it's chet gimel gimel in the Hebrew, and it means to celebrate. 
all three of those words are related there that I highlighted in yellow. Okay? In the Hebrew, these words carry the idea of celebration. You shall celebrate the celebration. Uh, this is so important because it points to the reason why we celebrate. Uh, you know, we're going to have a picnic in the, in the church today. If you're here late, you may not have heard that. We're not doing it down at the water, down at the, uh, what do you call that place down there by the river? The marina. See? Well, sometimes I forget words. But anyway, uh, we are not doing it at the marina because of the, it's cold and so forth, and it would kind of like, you know, give, it would be hard to celebrate while we're huddled over, we would be for Brad's grill, I think. Right? Can you imagine that? You know? What kind of a celebration is that? So we're going to have it in the church because it's so cold today. What's up with that, by the way? What's up with September? I mean, what is, did someone order that or something? I mean, I, my tomatoes just completely, they're just, it's just horrible, right? Well, anyway, uh, so, 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 but when we celebrate, you know, when we get together for a picnic, that's actually, I know this is going to sound kind of weird, but there's, that's actually kind of important work. I know that sounds odd, you know, to say it that way. But it's important that we come together as a congregation. It's important that we know one another. It's important that we celebrate together. You shall celebrate it as a celebration to the Lord. Now, earlier this morning, Jessica read from Psalm 42. And it's just a delight to me to see uh, her, her do that. And uh, I don't have the scripture up here on the, on the screen, but listen to this. This is Psalm 42. I'll read, read the first four verses again. It goes like this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so paints, or so pants, I'm sorry, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. Do you feel that way, by the way? Well, I can get off topic here really quickly. You know, I could. You know, that's, that's so important for us. Do, do we long for God? Do we thirst for God? Do we hunger for God? Always praying that on Wednesday nights. We pray that in the church, that God would bring people to us who are hungry, who are thirsty for him. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I come and appear before God. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember. I remember these things. As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Festival is the word that the English Standard Version uses. It's the same idea in the Hebrew language. Keeping the hagag, you see? Keeping festival. Keeping the celebration. I hope that coming to church for you is not a matter of just boredom. Because that's what people say all the time in the church, right? People, especially people who don't come to church, but people who will come to church a little bit here and there. So coming to church is kind of like a boring experience. Oh, I got to do it. I got to do it to make God happy. You know, I do. I got to do it to make God happy. That's what people think all the time. Because, you know, if I just get in the church, you know, at least, at least, at least once a month, maybe twice a month, oh, I'm really doing well then. If I just get here occasionally, God's going to just like pat me on the back a little bit. It's a good little boy, good little girl. And now I'm going to bless you because you're such a wonderful person. That's not how God operates. We come to the church because we Love God. We celebrate who God is. We celebrate what God has done. It's, it's so crucial for us to understand that, that we're a people who sees God, who understand that God has entered into time and space. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I, you know, you can't remember things. You can't, you can't remember, remember 
what God has done if you don't know what God has done. I mean, you can't. I, things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God and with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, keeping the feast, keeping the celebration, celebrating and celebrating and celebrating. What a joy it is to come into God's house. Now, just so you know, just so you know that I'm not making this stuff up, uh, I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't have it on the screen, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll turn there myself. The New Testament says the same thing. Paul's, Paul connects celebrating with the Passover. Paul says, I don't have time to go through you know, the whole thing with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but in verse 6 he says, you know, he's, he's chastising the congregation a little bit. He says, your boast is not good. It's verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, remember Exodus 12, Passover, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Let us celebrate the feast. You see, the church continues to remember the things that God has done throughout the Old Testament. Hence, Thursday night's really important for people. If you can make it. Because we remember what God has done in history. And the Old Testament prepares us to understand the work of Christ in the New Testament. When we have communion, and we're not having it today, but we are having a, a, a lunch today together. I don't know if you call that a picnic because there's, you know, we're inside, but it's a celebration, you see. It's a celebration. Okay, um, this is a radically different perspective than we get in the world because in the world it's like, I don't know. I don't know why we celebrate. I don't know why partying, but please pass the booze, right? Pass it over because, you know, I, I need to medicate myself or whatever it would be. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we have a different reason why we celebrate. We actually have a reason to celebrate. We actually have a reason to celebrate. Whereas the world, it's more like, hey, you know what? I'm alive today, so pass, pass the uh, alcohol, that kind of thing. All right? Now, all of this, I hope, helps us to understand a little bit about Ecclesiastes 1.3. Now, I know you're thinking, man, the pastor's not even, he says he's preaching through Ecclesiastes, he's been all this time in, in, in Exodus, and now he's telling us that this sermon's about Ecclesiastes 1.3. Well, it provides a background, okay? This is like it's really important. Because Solomon was dealing with this kind of stuff. He's trying to figure out a reason to celebrate, a reason to live, a reason to exist. He needs a reason. He needs God to come into his time and space and do something he wants to experience it, and God doesn't do it in Ecclesiastes. Look at this here, Ecclesiastes, beginning with, with verse 1, just the first three verses. The words of the preacher. We talked about that. It's the words of the preacher. It's not really the word of God, although in a sense it is, but it's not. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we know this to be Solomon, also known as Kohelet, because the word preacher in the Hebrew is Kohelet. Vanity of vanities. I hope in the morning when you wake up, that you look, I hope you don't look in the mirror and say to yourself, vanity of vanities. 
I'm pretty good looking, but what does it, what does it matter, right? No, I'm just joking around. But vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Remember, I told you that's like saying wind of wind. Wind of winds. All this wind, all this empty wind. Havel. Havel in the Hebrew. Um, and then he says this. Because he's trying to find a reason to live and a reason to celebrate. He wants to find God in this. What does man gain? By all the toil. Interesting the, the word all there, right? Whatever I do, it's not going to work. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Um, you know, Solomon is a very honest guy. You remember the story of Sisyphus is a, you know, uh, in the Greek, you know, literature and so forth, uh, how he, this, he pushes the stone up the hill. You know that? Are you familiar with that? It's, it's, he pushes the stone, rolls the big, huge stone up the hill. Uh, I had to get someone in the church to uh, uh, do that for me. There's, we have some strong people in the church, and I had to get someone in the church to push that stone up the hill so I get a photo. No, I'm just teasing. I don't, what's up with this teasing thing today? I don't get it. I really don't. But anyway, anyway so, so, but Sisyphus, he rolls the stone up the hill, right? And what happens as soon as the stone's up the hill? He rolls back down the hill. So what does he have to do? He does it again. And he does it again. And he does it again. And this is kind of the eternal nat- or eternal position that he's in. He's always rolling a stone up the hill. And that's the way it is with the world. Because that's the way it is, well, with an honest person in the world who's always trying to find God, you see, uh, because, as Solomon says, he's, Solomon himself is trying to find a reason to celebrate. Um, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Yeah. I have to give Solomon credit because he comes to realize that no matter what he does, no matter how much he works, he's not going to find meaning. Well, that is the way people live today. No matter how much you try to find God in your life, if God doesn't enter into time and space, if God doesn't enter into your world, actually, you're not going to get it, and you're not going to know God, and you're not going to find any purpose or any meaning in life. You know, I'm a weird guy. I'll give you a personal uh, testimony. And I don't know, I think it's actually just God's grace in my life, but this is a little bit of a personal testimony. I'll never forget when my dad's mother died. And I'll never forget them taking her body and putting it in the grave. And I asked the question, I was just a kid. I was, well, I was probably about 12 years old. I said, what is this for? I was 12 years old and I was asking the question, what is it all about? Why? And I realized, I go, I'm, okay, I'm 12. I don't have that many more years left before I'm that person in the ground. And that, may not be kind of, that may be kind of weird at 12, but that's what I was thinking. How can I find purpose and meaning in this world? I was asking that question. You know what we need to do as a church? We need to pray that all of our young people ask that question. 
I'll never forget being in college, and I had all my buddies, all my friends were going, and they were studying computer science, and they were being super successful, because I went to Stanford, and Stanford's kind of this impressive place and so forth, and everyone was there to make a big, a large amount of money. That's what they were there for. And I remember sitting there right in front of the student union building, and I remember sitting there, and I was looking around. I'll never forget it. It was sunny. It was beautiful. I'll never forget it. I thought, what's the point? We're all going to die What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Who cares how much you make? And I said, God, please show me a way that I can use my life to make a difference in this world. You know what? I know that's, this is about me a little bit. I don't mean it to be that way. I really seriously don't. But we need to pray that our young people get that message. That they understand that, boy, unless if God enters into our time and space, enters into our lives, it's all nothing. Absolutely nothing. And Solomon realizes this, and that's to his credit. No matter how much he works, he's not going to find meaning. So, what's toil in Ecclesiastes 1.3? It's about finding the work of God in the wind. It's about finding God in the wind. It's about finding meaning and purpose in the wind. That's what it's about, right? Um, we need to ask that. Now, Solomon actually gives us five types of toils in Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't have time to be able to talk about all of them. I am going to make reference to one of them, at least a little bit. Okay? Uh, but there are five toils, and I'm going to give them to you right here. First, first toil. Simply means work, right? Work to find God. First toil that he gives us in the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom. If I can be wise enough, then I will find God in this wind if I can just be wise enough. Guess what he discovers? It doesn't happen, right? That's another sermon, by the way. You know why? Because it's not about our own abilities. God has to give us the grace in order to discover him. I mean, it's not about us getting, getting on first base. God gives us the grace to get to first base, okay? He also gives us another toil, or he talks about another toil. I'm going to give you a little more. I'm going to go cover this a little bit today. And that is pleasure. Maybe if I just enjoy myself enough in terms of pleasure, that I will discover God and purpose and meaning. He also gives us another uh, uh, toil in the book, wealth and power. This is very closely related to pleasure. But wealth and power. And then another toil is altruism, doing things for nice people. How tempting it is to think that if we just tell people to do something nice for others, then they will, their lives will have meaning. You know what? I'm going to tell you this right now. It sounds radical. because There's truth in that, but it's not true. There's plenty of people who do good things for others, but they're miserable inside because they haven't found God. I, I, I need to preach a sermon on that one. I mean, that's... That's so important because it's, it is crucial that we tell people to, to go ahead and serve others. It's a very important thing. If you're only serving yourself, you're definitely going to be a miserable person. I don't care how much money you have. You're going to be miserable. You do things for others, you're doing better, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And then this one here, even religion. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of faith that transforms the heart and mind where we recognize God in 
or time and space, but there is religion that people search after because they think if they do the religion right, that somehow they'll connect with God. You know what the book of Ecclesiastes says? Not true. Not going to happen. You can be as religious as you want, but that religion is not going to get you connected with God because it is human-centered religion. And by the way, God in the book of Ecclesiastes is the God of the deists. The God that sets the world in motion and but goes out on the golf course to please himself. Right? That's the God of Ecclesiastes. Well, anyway, so this God of uh, this, uh, this, I want to just speak for a few moments about pleasure because it's c- so closely uh, uh, associated with what people think that they need in order to be happy in our, in our world. So we relate to this. The world relates to this. Pleasure says this. Relax. Enjoy yourself. Throw the toga party. Feed your body, and you'll feed your soul. That's the lie that we're given. Drink it up, and you'll feel better. And if it doesn't feed your soul, well, at least you'll be happy doing it. But oh boy, you better not stop because the emptiness is going to hurt. It is going to hurt when you realize that no matter what you do with pleasure, it's absolutely empty. Look what, what, look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I just made mention of that, didn't I? But behold, this also was vanity. In other words, it's empty, emptiness. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of, on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to, to do under, the, under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and, and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that, my hand, all that my hands had done and the toil. See, the problem that Solomon has is he actually stopped to think. All the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after win, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Listen, if you're into pleasure and if you're into doing things you know, that are going to somehow you think are cheering your body, and somehow connecting with your soul, don't stop. Don't stop for a moment. Don't stop. Keep going until you die. Because guess what? As soon as you stop, you're going to discover how empty you are and how vain you are. How your life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It is worth nothing. That's what Solomon's telling us. You better keep drinking. You better keep cheering your body. You better keep going into sexual encounters or whatever it is, whatever it takes to make you feel like you actually have some sort of life. You better keep doing it. You better not stop. 
Because if you stop, you're going to come to the realization that your life is meaningless and empty. And the depression will destroy you. You know, there is only one answer, right? It's this person named Jesus. He's the answer. Now, I go on and I have so much more I can say today. But this is a horrible place that our world is in. But Jesus provides a way out. You know what he says? He says, remember what I've done with the Hebrews. Remember my work that I did through the people of Israel. Remember how I came into their time and space, how I gave them this festival, how I gave them this feast, how I gave them something to celebrate because I did something. And then he comes to us in the New Testament and he says, remember what I've done when I shed my blood for you. I became the Passover lamb. I entered into time and space, and I want to enter into your time and space, but you have to say, have mercy on me. You have to call out my name. You have to ask me to come into your life. You have to call on the name of the Lord. If you call on my name, I will gladly enter into your life, and you won't have meaninglessness and purposelessness, but your life will be filled with joy and celebration that means something. I don't know where you are today. I, I don't know. But I know this. God wants you to be redeemed. When he redeems us, he doesn't just redeem us alone. He redeems us into his family so that we have picnics together. We celebrate together. We live together. We live the life together. We become connected to one another because to be redeemed and to have God come into our time and space and into our lives means that we are part of everything that he does. And do you want that? That's the question this morning. Do you want God to actually do that? Because no matter how much you work, no matter how much you toil, as Solomon did, it is empty and will get you nowhere. But God will give you the grace because, and here it is, and I don't understand it, it's because he loves you. He looks at you and says, I know you will never get there without me. You'll never, enter, you'll never enter into that joy without me. You'll never have a reason to celebrate without me. But the fact is, I want to be with you. If you want that for your life, then call on him. And he will give you the grace to be in him. Lord Jesus, this morning, we're sorry that we tried to do it ourselves. Even as Christians, Lord, so often we try to do things ourselves. We try to heal ourselves. We try to get everything going our way. We try to get just the right amount of pleasure or money or wisdom or, or we try to help others or, or we even try to do religion ourselves. And all the time we say, hey, you know what? I'm here if you just ask me. Lord, there could be someone here this morning and I'm not going to ask people to come forward, but 
It could be someone here this morning. It could be several people this morning who have said, have come to realize, maybe hear this word this morning, and they realize, they know it's true, that they need you to come into their lives. Lord, if there's someone here who needs you in their, his or her life, would you move him or her to call on your name to simply say this prayer? I'm gonna, it goes like this. And, and, and if, 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 if you in this congregation want to enter into this prayer, then I just invite you to do so that, so that you can call on the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to find you completely on my own, my way. Forgive me for trying to take you and put you in a particular box and telling you who you are. Forgive me for trying to be wise without you. Lord Jesus, forgive me for the times that I've given in to pleasure to try to forget my pain. Forgive me for the time when I have pursued money and power in order to forget my pain. Forgive me for the times when I've only tried to help others, but it's all in my power. Forgive me for taking the church or any religion and making it simply my religion. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. And I call upon your name to come into my life and to give me the Holy Spirit so that I could connect personally and intimately with Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming into my life and for giving me my sin. Now I can pursue you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, if that prayer was your prayer, would you let me know this week? Maybe even today. But let me know. It'll do something within you. It'll, it, when you proclaim that you've become a Christian, there's something that happens inside you. The Lord Jesus somehow comes into that and says, oh yeah, you're my child. Would you do that today, even today, and certainly this week, if you prayed that prayer? Amen.